Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Remember the days after the 9-11 attacks when for a short time Americans of all political stripes seemed to be united? Well, that was a long time ago. Last week's attack, called a terrorism by President Obama, has fractured the country even more clearly over partisan lines. It's kind of like this. If you're a Democrat, last week's attack was about gun policy. If you're a Republican, it's about foreign policy. If you're a Democrat, it's about a failure by lawmakers to address a widespread problem of violence in our country. If you're a Republican, it's about a failure by the president to take on the global terror threat posed by ISIS. And if you're Donald Trump, it's about banning Muslims from entering the U.S. Today, where we live, our political roundtable, The Wheelhouse, will tackle these two views of America today and how they're playing out here in Connecticut. Joining us, as always, is Colin McEnroe, the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Hello, Colin. Good morning, Mr. Dan. Also joining us from Quinnipiac University, Associate Professor of Political Science, Kalila Brown-Dean. Hello once again, Kalila. Hi, John. And Bill Curry is here. He's a columnist for Salon.com. But before he got famous as a columnist for Salon.com, he was our Democratic political analyst. Hi, Bill. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good. If you want to join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Last week's mass shooting in San Bernardino has been politicized by both sides of the political aisle. We'll get to Republicans in a few moments, but this tragedy has reignited Democrats on the issue of guns. Here's Senator Chris Murphy speaking on MSNBC and Representative Elizabeth Esty on the floor of the House. Right now, these thoughts and prayers and sympathies have become a, a, a mask for an action, and mm-hmm. they are wholly insufficient. Gun violence is a public health crisis that deserves this House to take action now. Colin, uh, Elizabeth Esty was walking into our studios at CPBN on Saturday morning because she was taping uh, a spot for MSNBC, and she was pretty exercised, pretty fired up about the issue of guns in America. As I said, we'll get to other reactions uh, about the San Bernardino shootings and what other Americans have made of this. But maybe you could talk a little bit first about uh, Senator Murphy, Representative Esty, and others in our delegation and around the state saying right now is the time to reignite this this conversation about guns in America. Yeah, I mean, uh, there are very good reasons why they are the ones doing it, and there are very good reasons for doing it. That said, I don't know how effective any of this is going to be. I mean, when you actually think about, for example, what's being talked about, what the president talked about on Sunday night, the notion that uh, that people on terrorist no-fly lists should not be able to buy firearms, I mean, that that's what we're asking. There's a sort of an Oliver Twistian quality that, that something as as basic as that, something as common sense as that, is what we're talking about, what we're asking for. And really, you know, I, you have to wonder if Newtown didn't create the political momentum to do something about this on the congressional level, what possibly could? Um, and, and so I applaud everything that they're doing and everything that they're saying. But, you know, I actually don't think this is where the remedy is going to come. 
Galala? And I think Colin taps into the challenge of this political moment of having innocent children killed in a school is not enough to make people step forward to say we need to do something differently. You actually see states sort of expanding gun rights and you see more people going out to get gun permits in the wake of that. So this is a moment for politicians to step forward. But to be honest, you have Americans willing to stake their entire vote on protecting their Second Amendment, even at the expense of public safety and respecting those rights. Do you think that this new attack that Democrats are taking, Bill, and it actually had started before the San Bernardino attacks, really uh, asking questions about this no-fly list? I mean, is it is it sensible that people who are on a no-fly list because there's some sort of a threat potentially to the United States would be able to go out and buy guns? Do you think that your party has begun to found, find a, a winning argument around this issue? No, I don't. Um, I, and and I think the, I think it's the right. Po- I think they're right. Uh, the, the, there's two things. One, uh, there, there's a sense that is inescapable that they that, that they are also playing for position. And one of the most depressing things about turning a television on or opening up a newspaper or listening to WNPR in the last few days is one politician after another, and you think, wow, he's just. Here we are in the midst of this crisis and all he or she is doing is playing for position to tell you why we should hate Obama more, to tell you why – you know, it, it just and, – and there's so little of substance being said. And so and, – and, but it's, the second thing is that for Democrats, particularly for the president, I liked his speech very much. It was a 13-minute long speech and, and it wasn't a call to arms. It was a plea for sanity. It was the best example of his – what he says, really says is his core foreign policy doctrine, don't do stupid stuff. Don't get into a ground war. Don't repress Muslims. Don't estrange Islam across the world. But through all of this, people want to know what we are going to do. And when we talk too much about the gun safety issue, it seems as if we're simply reverting to that. Even though it's a, even though it's, it's a, there's a particular part of it that's relevant to this, it seems as if we're not doing what we need to do, which is to put on the table a, a, a strong, credible, clear argument for how we're going to make people safe. And why the and why our policy is smarter than theirs? We're not doing it. And in that thirteen minute speech, Kalila, I mean, did the president say anything to you that sounded like, "Here's what we're going to do to keep people safe"? I think he did not, and I think that was intentional. You know, attacking the gun issue is really low hanging fruit at this point, but it's still too high for us to address. That speech wasn't really a speech to supporters. It wasn't really a speech to people who agree with the president or to Democrats. It was an appeal for people who are driven by emotion. You know, the reality is, and it's hard for a president to say, the reality is we cannot keep everyone in this country safe, no matter how much intelligence we have, no matter how many laws we have. And that's not just a foreign threat. That's a domestic issue, too, whether we're talking about a Planned Parenthood clinic that gets, um, you know, the the target of attack. So the president didn't say this is what we're going to do. I don't even know that it's for the president to say that at this moment. We do not yet know. I I think also yoking this, yoking all these things together may be a mistake. Um, In fact, I mean, since 9-11, deaths on U.S. soil from terrorism uh, amount to, I think, about 43 from what you could call kind of Muslim-linked terrorism, maybe about 50 from other kinds of, for the most part, kind of right-wing terrorism. So compared to the more than 30,000 people a year who die by gun violence, this is a pretty boutique market. Um, it, it's not the reason we need better gun laws. 
uh, the reason we need better gun laws is that other number. It's the the, the ten thousand violent gun deaths, the twenty thousand deaths by by gun suicide, you know, and then the sundry other deaths, sort of um, sort of gun accidents and other miscellaneous. That's why we need better gun laws. And, and I think, in a sense, trying to do that and the Muslim part and the terrorism part it, it, all in one big gulp might be a mistake. Yeah, I, I just want to make say one thing to what Kyle said, and, and, and which is that I agree. Uh, the president's speech, he did say the most important things. The most important thing right now is not to do something stupid. The, the theme of that speech was don't take the bait. <laughs> that this, is, this is what bin Laden said he wanted from us. This is what Zarqawi said. This is what ISIS wants. Get us into a ground war. Repress Muslims, estrange Islam. And, and above all right now, this is the tricky wicket I want you to go through. I want you to calm down. I want you to come together. I don't want you to do this. Secondly, he looks wonderful compared to the extraordinary irrational din of almost everyone else, including some in the Democratic Party right now. That's great. Thirdly, though, and, and to go to the question of, of whether this is quite the time to be talking about just about gun safety measures, the country is so fearful, so understandably fearful, and they've been waiting for a while for – the, the progressive, the more enlightened but strong and clear argument as to how we're going to keep America safe and whether or not Sunday was the time to give that speech, you could sort of argue back and forth. But it's, but it's overdue. Uh, we're talking today in the wheelhouse with Bill Curry, columnist for Salon.com, Kalila Brown-Dean from Quinnipiac University, and our own Colin McEnroe. And we're talking about these issues that have played out since San Bernardino, which all do seem to be linked together in the media and by politicians, whether they should be linked together or not. One of the linkages this week, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear a case challenging Chicago's gun laws. This decision affects other gun control measures like the ones here in Connecticut. It's seen by some, Kalila, as a, as a victory for uh, gun control supporters, including uh, those like Governor Malloy, who pushed for uh, tougher uh, gun laws here in Connecticut. So you see mayors and governors across the country saying we are facing a crisis. And I know that this show has talked about gun violence as a public health crisis. And they're saying we don't have the luxury of waiting until a mass shooting to talk about these issues. We are dealing with it on an everyday basis. And that's whether you're talking about Chicago or you're talking about a small city. These are the occurrences, as Colin said, that are much more apparent, the sort of everyday mundane acts of gun violence that may not make the news, but do decimate communities. Colin? Yeah, I think this is a victory for, I mean, it's a weird kind of victory uh, for gun control that they didn't take Highland. And that, it's because, in fact, they basically have the same numbers, the same five that they had in Heller. Heller is now their landmark uh, gun gun case, the gun control case, and if you, I went back and reread parts of Scalia's opinion today, and Breyer's dissent, and Stevens's dissent, you know, and the the landscape hasn't changed very much, so you kind of don't want to see this particular court take this up. However, I think also they they might have taken it up if mm. they thought they had the numbers. So that's also. You know, if you think about it that way, it's a victory another way, which is that somehow the court saw Highland as a very different kind of case. I mean, Heller is such a bedrock case just just in the way that Scalia starts with his his understanding, his argument about what the Second Amendment really says. Um, Given that, if that's not going to move very much, then you kind of don't want them going too near a gun law that you like. I, I agree with everything Kyle just said. And I, I think it is a victory for precise. It's kind of negative victory. Uh, and when I also read those opinions uh, and uh, read through most of it in the majority opinions. And 
And I was struck at the time that it wasn't as far-reaching as I thought it was from the headlines of the newspapers. And I was struck at the time that there were reasons to take some heart from this. Uh, uh, but the bottom line is – but there are two bottom lines. One is you're going to need a new court to get a real law. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the idea that the Second Amendment is what the NRA says it is – didn't even occur to anyone in this country until the 1930s. We went from the founding of the republic to the 1930s before even anyone even suggested this was about the individual right to bear arms. Nobody ever told all those sheriffs and all those western towns that said you can't bring your guns in here that there was a constitutional problem. It wasn't even suggested until then, and it didn't become uh, codified in Supreme Court language till five years ago. I'm yeah. sorry, seven years ago, 2008. Could I just say one thing about that, too? That I just happened to have heard a really interesting paper about this. And really, so 38 is the Miller decision, which basically mm-hmm. says sawed-off shotguns can be regulated. They're not the kinds of things that militias right. would use. So that's 38. But really, the Second Amendment was not a battleground, really, until maybe the, like the 1970s in some ways. And what if you were teaching a constitutional law class in the 1950s, you might not get to the Second Amendment. It just wasn't like a really interesting part of the Constitution. Now, one thing that did happen was the NRA and related groups started sponsoring legal scholarship prizes, uh, started and started flooding legal journals. I mean, we, we went from legal journals having maybe one or two Second Amendment articles a year in major legal, legal legal journals up to, you know, 35 and 40. That was no accident. The NRA realized it needed legal scholars and legal scholarship to win some of these cases. But I think this also highlights why 2000. 16 will be such an important election because in determining who becomes president, they will have the ability to appoint people to the Supreme Court that could give a very different tone on this. When you see presidents of Liberty University linking politics with gun rights, with this sort of religious imperative, it shows you how many people care about this in a way that they didn't 20 years ago. Um, I think that's true. An insurance actuary would tell you that the Democrats have to win the next two presidential elections Mm -hmm. in order to get a majority of the Supreme (laughs) Court because the person likeliest to retire would be Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, I myself live in the fantasy that three of the more right-wing justices would think they were really sick, resign, and then recover the next day so they could go out and have decent lives. I just want to say one other thing about this, and that is that one of the things that's been lost late in the culture, uh, in, in the discussion, is the question of culture. And I know there have been studies that have gone back and forth, but it is true that there are places with with uh, with comparable vi- uh, uh, gun control laws that have very different levels of violence. And at some point, we stop talking about the constant infusion of violent imagery, of hate speech, the constant you know video games, and I, I still believe instinctively that the fact that our, uh, our, our culture is so awash in so many I- images of sanctioned violence that at least beginning that discussion and putting the pressure on those places and those businesses in the media, et cetera, uh, you, you can't be teaching children. You, you can't be teaching them violence every day and expect them to behave in a nonviolent way consistently as adults. But, but before we, we take a break, I want to head to one other thing that is also uh, – it has to do with the same issue in a way, and it has to do with Chicago in a way. Uh, it's been plagued, of course, for years by gun violence. Uh, the, the cultural significance of this has been picked up in a new movie by Spike Lee called Chirac. Uh, now, the city's police department is also under investigation by the U.S. Justice Department. Here's Attorney General Loretta Lynch announcing this investigation. Specifically, we will examine a number of issues related to the Chicago Police Department's use of force, including its use of deadly force, racial, ethnic, and other disparities in its use of force, and its accountability mechanisms. 
So, Kalila, everything in our conversation today seems to be tied together, and this tied together in a very clear way. In Chicago, the gun deaths that we've seen for years don't really have anything to do with a lot of the gun laws that we're talking about in Washington or in Hartford right now. They have to do with something that's very different, uh, having to do with crime in the streets. The way the Chicago PD has gone after crime is now the focus of attention. What do you see in all this that's part of this larger conversation we're having about guns and violence? Well, I think it links to guns and violence, but also this question about what do we do about terror? When you paint an entire community of people as a threat, as opposed to seeing people as individuals, then you get the reaction of people saying, we don't allow Muslims to enter this country. You have the overreaction of police officers who will allow an unarmed person to be shot in the back multiple times. And to Bill's point, my question is always, what message do young people receive when they're constantly bombarded with these videos of people being gunned down in the street? It desensitizes some people, but for others, there's this perpetual sense of trauma. And so we have to think about the psychological impact that makes people more likely to commit acts of violence or not see the value in their own lives. I mean, obviously, what's going to happen in Chicago, what's happened in Chicago is a far-reaching misuse of police powers, and it extends even beyond the use of deadly force. If you heard the report last night on uh, on NPR about the use of torture to extract confessions, I mean, it really does sound like it is. I mean, Chirac is perfect. I mean, it really does sound like we're dealing with a very different country. Bill? And I just, two things. And having mentioned culture, I want to talk about the economy just in, in, in response again to what Kyla said. Again, it's dead on right. But you have what unites uh, uh, the the Boston bomber uh, and Dylan Roof in Charleston is that there is this underclass, this precariat of of young males who think they're going nowhere, who are furious, who are angry, who have none of the usual cultural supports and reinforcements, but above all, no economic opportunity. And economic opportunity is a part of this answer. Second thing, it's no accident that the mayor of uh, Chicago has the nickname Rombo. Uh, he one of the great thugs I ever encountered in political life. And even before this all broke on him, he was, he was actually attacking Obama cleverly by saying that, 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 that the rhetoric of the Democrats had forced police into the fetal position and it was time to back off on calls for change. He has been such a horrible example. There are so many other reasons that he ought to be recalled. This is really one of our worst public officials uh, in, in, on so many levels. But the role he has played in this – no one's watched any city more closely than we've watched Chicago – the high death rates, the fact that Obama came from there. This has been an absolute uh, example for the country of the problem. And, 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 and Rahm Emanuel has taken it in every single aspect down the wrong road. A quick call from Steve in West Hartford. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Uh, hi. Um, I have a question that really goes back to an earlier part of the panel this morning with regards to Democrats, Republicans, gun legislation, and so on. Uh, you know, it was almost three years ago now, Newtown, following Newtown in Connecticut, there was a drive to bring in some pretty harsh gun safety measures. Um, I was helping with that effort. One of the ideas at that point was to mandate that insurance companies had to uh, include gun ownership in underwriting of homeowners insurance policy and so on. It didn't go anywhere. This week, uh, I reached out to a Democrat asking, can we, can we revisit that? We try that again three years later, San Bernardino at this point. And the response was, well, it didn't work when we tried it three years ago, so no. My question for the panel is, you, you don't necessarily have to 
know you're going to win a fight in order to start the fight, in order to force conversation, force insurance companies and the NRA to come out and say why that would be a bad idea, in order to get a conversation going where you can force people to take positions on pretty simple issues. Well, and Steve, I, I apologize for cutting you off, but I think I get your point. I just want a quick response from Kalila because we got a break soon. Well, and I think the, the point is we've been having this conversation for a very long time. And if something as proximate as Newtown here in Connecticut could not force moving from conversation to action, I'm not convinced that something happening in California will do it. But but is, I think Steve's asking for just putting more conversation on the table, including uh, you know, entering in new legislation, Colin. Yeah, so well, it was the question is sort of why not charge up the hill anyway, even if you're not going to make it to the top. Um, well, one argument is, is that sometimes the NRA is really good at getting laws passed as a result of your efforts. So in 2005, gunmakers were exempted from conventional liability law, which is a pretty close cousin to what he's talking about. I actually think more progress will be made on an extra legal front. I mean, in fact, gun ownership is declining for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with government action. I think also like a really interesting area uh, this week uh, was uh, Aaron Ross Sorkin's article uh, about people who about movements to divest various kinds of retirement funds and other kinds of uh, of indexed funds from gun from gun manufacturers. In other words, wh- why own gun stock by accident if you don't want to? Stuff like that that people can do without the help of the government. Th- that may be a, a, a better inroad. Colin McEnroe hosts the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Kalila Brown Dean from Quinnipiac. Bill Curry from Salon.com. When we come back, more conversation about the news of the week here on the Wheel. House and where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankosk. It's Wednesday, so it's the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We're here with Bill Curry, columnist for Salon.com, Kalila Brown-Dean from Quinnipiac University, and our own Colin McEnroe. What's in your show this afternoon, Colin? We are. Um, we did a show about the influence that Dante's Inferno has on people's lives. People use it to uh, get over tragedies. It's now being used in prisons. It speaks eloquently to uh, people in prisons. Uh, we loved it so much, we kind of cut it back up, and we're going to share it with you again. Okay, so a uh, good transition here. Dante's Inferno this afternoon at 1 o'clock on the Colin McEnroe and Show. back to politics. And, <laughs> and here's, here's Donald Trump. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. Okay, so Kalila, and if, if you watch 24-hour news channels, as we do all day in the newsroom, much to our chagrin, uh, this is all that uh, almost anybody in the news is talking about right now. I mean, I don't know what new can necessarily be said about this. Many Republicans have come out and, and absolutely took an, uh, taken him to task for saying this. Obviously, uh, Democrats have been uh, fire-breathing in their response to this. But what should we think about the fact that a guy who's leading now even more substantially than he was before in presidential polls heading into the primaries is saying this sort of stuff? So I think this, for me, is less about Donald Trump and more about the voters with whom this resonates. When you see that his poll numbers have actually gone up post the Paris attacks, post his comments about San Bernardino and how we should treat Muslims in this country, it means that there is a strong base of people who believe this and are willing to put this forward. So instead of attacking Donald Trump and sort of dis, you know, regarding his comments, we need to think about that and what that will mean for everyday interactions that people have. If you harbor these beliefs, at what point will people act on them in terms of hate crimes or making it very uncomfortable for American citizens? Uh, uh, Trump has accomplished something extraordinary, which is that he has single-handedly reintroduced the word fascism 
and the word fascist into mainstream political discourse. It was uh, – I've never called anyone that in my life. Trump's a fascist uh, and I've never felt entitled to do that and we don't do it because it had all the – uh, uh, associations with National Socialism, Hitler, the Holocaust. It's such an invidious thing. And yet we've actually missed the word because there are elements of our population, of our politics that have tendencies that it would be helpful to identify of extreme nationalism, of narcissistic leader-centered, disrespect for due process, willingness to use violence uh, two or three times in the Trump campaign. And, I, and it's, it's helpful to, uh, to, point, uh, to point that out. Uh, earlier this year, I said what, what Nate Silver was saying, which is that he's not, he's not rising in the general election polls. He's, he hasn't been rising in the general election polls since the beginning of the race. He's been rising in a, uh, in a declining Republican base, which is now 25 percent rather than 30 percent of the country, and only among its primary electorate. But it's important to underscore Delilah's point. Between what he and Ted Cruz, who says with a dog whistle what Trump says with a bullhorn, uh, ben Carson, who is a, as much of a conspiracy monger as you have, and Mike Huckabee, in, the, in a sec- succession of polls, that's 60 percent of the Republican electorate. And that's the condition of their party, and that's what they've created. Colin? Um, very, I know time is tight. Uh, just, I mean, one observation about Trump is that he's upset another conventional political narrative, which is that some, at some point there's a reveal, right? We pull a, uh, aside that glossy, glad-handing, grinning, genial, nice person, and there's a monster underneath. He's running as the monster, uh, which is kind of new, I think. Um, but I, I'll just use the, uh, a little bit of time just to say, yeah. look, this either fizzles out. Uh, uh, because of all the reasons the bill just said, or if there are more instances of domestic terror that are linked to Muslim communities, this becomes a pivotal issue, not only in the presidential election, but a bunch of congressional issues. I'm, I'm agnostic on the question of whether ISIL or ISIS thinks about this the same way that people think that they do, that they might do an October surprise to trigger a kind of result that they want in the presidential election. I'm not really, I'm not, I'm agnostic. I don't know whether ISIS thinks about that kind of thing, but I can tell you that some of these elections are going to be thrown into tumult if, in fact, there are more San Bernardinos. Uh, very quickly, Claudia, we just have 30 seconds. No, I think it's the key point that we focus a lot on the presidential level. We, f- we focus a lot on November. There's a long road between now and November. It's the in-between that concerns me the most. Uh, we're talking with Kalilo Brown-Dean, who's an associate professor of political science at Quinnipiac, and Bill Curry from Salon.com and our own Colin McEnroe. We've got to take a break, and we're going to turn it over to some colleagues of ours who are going to tell you why you should support public radio. Shows like The Wheelhouse on Where We Live and The Colin McEnroe Show and everything else you hear, they're going to tell you how you can become a member right now on WNPR. Don't go away. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it has now been three years since saxophonist Jimmy Green lost his six-year-old daughter, Anna, in the tragic shooting at Sandy Hook. His latest album called Beautiful Life, where Green memorializes his little girl, was just nominated for two Grammys this week. So coming up tomorrow, we're going to revisit a conversation with him and his wife, Nelba, that we had last year. We're going to talk about the music that has helped them through this difficult time and reflect on the life of their daughter. I hope you can join us for this conversation tomorrow on Where We Live. Today in the program, it's The Wheelhouse, 
our weekly news roundtable. We're joined in studio by Bill Curry, who is a columnist for Salon.com and our political analyst, Kalila Brown-Dean, who's an associate professor of political science at Quinnipiac University, and our own Colin McEnroe, uh, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. We got to an awful lot that, uh, that we're talking about in the world today, including how some of these politics are playing out in Connecticut. Now, of course, next year, there's not just a presidential election, but also elections in the House and Senate. Senator Richard Blumenthal will seek re-election, and although August Wolf has officially announced that he's challenging Blumenthal, uh, the sitting senator seems more concerned about Larry Kudlow, who has not officially decided on a challenge. And this gets back to some of what we were talking about earlier, Colin. It has it has a lot to do with uh, U.S. foreign policy. Are, are we looking now at an actual Kudlow challenge to uh, Senator Blumenthal, and how, how worried should he be? I, I, first of all, don't think he should be all that worried, and there have, there have been reports that he's sweating, uh, I think was the verb, uh, this challenge from Kudlow. I mean, he probably is because anybody who's got uh, a Senate seat who's being challenged by anybody should take it seriously. You don't want to be the hare that's the tortoise. Uh, you, you, but I, I don't actually – I mean, I think Blumenthal's seat is safe if any seat is safe. Now, I mean, the overlay to that is what I said before, which is a couple of domestic terrorism incidents that somehow or other really sparked uh, a national wave of paranoia about this could really kind of change the math, even of an election like that, particularly if it was a certain kind of thing that was kind of close to home. Um, but overall, I don't I don't see this um, as a big challenge, and I'm not sure Kudlow will get in. August Wolf seems like, well, I mean, he is a former Olympic shot putter. I will do the unforgivable and quote myself that an Olympic shot putter is a great metaphor for a Republican U.S. Senate race in Connecticut in the sense that no matter how hard you push and exert yourself, the thing doesn't really go very far. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, that's usually the case. I don't know. This could be a paradigm breaker, but I doubt it. And, and I was going to say the, the reason, uh, Kalila, that, that, that Larry Kudlow said that he, he may get into this race had to do with uh, Senator Blumenthal's vote around around the Iran nuclear deal. Um, Collins suggests that maybe one or two things that maybe even tip us more into this being a foreign policy election in 2016 might indeed change things around. But I, I guess I wonder how exactly. I mean, what's the what's the foreign policy solution that Republicans either like Larry Kudlow or like those running for president have that the president and those running uh, for reelection like Senator Blumenthal don't have? Because it seems as though no one has a real clear answer about what to do with the big threat, which is ISIS. Right. And the, the big catch 22 here is that you see more voters, more everyday people interested in U.S. foreign policy, but with no clear plan. It is whatever Obama is suggesting. I don't want that. Whatever Democrats are advocating for, it's anti that. And so on this level, you have to have something to offer in comparison. But I think, again, as Colin said, we've got a lot of ground to cover between now and this election. A couple of events, a couple of heated shouting match could make the difference. I don't think it's a threat for Blumenthal, but it does raise the question of how we engage foreign policy at home. Uh, first of all, it, it, when, when Dick was elected to the U.S. Senate, there was a, some people who wondered whether how he would manage the transition from being attorney general to the United States senator. And it turns out he didn't. He's still the attorney general. I don't know if you knew that. And, uh, and he's on television as much and with the same kinds of issues and he's been pushing them in that new forum. And, uh, and that gives him great strength. Dick does a good job. Dick, Dick does his job well. And, you know, and, 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 and the public thinks that. So he's going to be a very tough guy to go after for that reason alone. Secondly, I don't think Donald Trump – I've heard you know, Joe Scarborough – Cudlow, there are these uh, this idea that other television celebrities that, that, that you know Trump has not softened the ground for other uh, argumentative people from television to come run for public office in Connecticut. 
which is a more polite and more substantive for all of our faults. The one thing going the way of any Republican candidate, uh, I, I think the Democratic candidate for president will, will do very well in, in Connecticut. I don't think the Democratic Party brand is in very good shape in the state of Connecticut right now. There's a general disaffection and they bleed back and forth. You more often think of how the national mood affects the state mood. But this is a case in which a state mood could affect a national election. I, I just want to get to, and I, one of Colin's favorite topics is Joe Scarborough. I will say he made big news this week for very bravely uh, going into break while Donald Trump was on the phone and then bringing Donald Trump back after the break. But um, earlier he was, uh, he was going after the president during his speech uh, about uh, the lack of a clear plan for dealing with foreign terrorism, ISIS, whether or not America should exert more uh, authority overseas. He doesn't necessarily have a plan, but he, like a lot of other Republicans, have said uh, the president and, and Democrats have fallen short on this. Uh, and I don't know, is, is he right, Bill? I mean, should I asked you this before, but should President Obama and other Democrats who are running in 2016 come up with a more coherent plan of how they're going to tackle global terrorism than they have? Let me say, first of all, if you want to get issues like health care and economic inequality uh, and and public corruption back on the table, this is is what you have to do first. You have to answer this question now in order to create the conversational space for the issues you want to run on. That's number one. Number two, this is the uh, president's uh, foremost job and any candidate's foremost job. To hear the Republicans complaining about it, what they're doing is almost diabolical. The only Republican, and I follow this stuff very closely now, who said anything about exactly what he would do that's anything different from what Obama's doing except tough talk is Lindsey Graham. And he's lying because he says it's 15,000 troops. When everyone – if you got – put them all on sodium pentothal and told them the tape wasn't running – this is at least what we sent the first time. This is 100 to 150,000 troops staying for the better part of a generation. If that's the option and that's what you're for, come out and say what it is. But because they don't want to say that, they don't even want to vote on a war authorization. All that comes down to is they want him to, to rattle more sabers. What, it is too bad if the Democrats could make the case and there, that there are other better ways to be safe. If they could put a policy out of the table – as I'm doing for Salon Peace right now, uh, <laughs> then it would be so easy to, un- to expose what the Republicans are doing, to call their bluff, to make them put something on the table. But until, until we do that, it'll be very hard for us. And it, yeah, if Lindsey Graham's the only one saying anything about a Kalila, I mean, he's, he's polling right now like a you know, Chipotle Yelp review <laughs> this week. I mean, and he's the only one. What, what do you that say? That was great. I mean, it reminds me a lot of when I ran for student body president in sixth grade. And I, I won <laughs> yeah. because I promised more recess, a lot more fun, candy vending machines. I didn't have to tell them how I would do that. And I couldn't do that. Wow. But it sounded great. They voted yes. And that's what's happening here. So if you're Donald Trump and you're Ted Cruz and you're saying, I'm going to bomb the hell out of them. I'm going to eradicate this threat. That sounds good. It gets applause. But tell me what that means. Does that mean more boots on the ground? Does that mean more loss of life? Does that mean more veterans coming back to this country and not having the support that we already know is abysmal? So they understand that and they play to that. The fact that Lindsey Graham seems the most you know, ready to do that is almost as surprising as having Dick Cheney be the key conservative opponent 
doubting what Donald Trump is saying. So one of the unsexy truths of uh, battling adversaries in the Middle East uh, is that slowly degrading their capacity is usually a lot more effective than completely destabilizing them with one massive knockout blow. So we saw that in 2003, right? I mean, Saddam Hussein was effectively the mayor of Baghdad by the time we invaded because of we we had degraded his abilities using no-fly zones, uh, embargoes, sanctions, stuff like that. He He wasn't really a particularly effective Middle Eastern menace. Um, Similarly, ISIS is losing right now. I kind of wish that Obama had said that a little bit more um, affirmatively on Sunday night. You know, the good news is that ISIS is losing. They're losing territory. They're losing bodies. The bad news is that ISIS is losing, which means that they've got to look for other things like Paris to do. They've got to find other fronts because on their home front, they're not doing all that well. But I mean, ultimately, that's the truth. And it it doesn't make it. it, You would lose your election to Kalila if you say this, that slowly whittling away and degrading the capacity of an enemy like ISIS is really the way to go, even though it doesn't create big headlines. The the president uh, is is so bright and so logical and so often unwilling to elaborate on his position, to explain as well as Colin just did. (laughs) And you have to be constantly arguing the facts and you have to constantly be applying reason. There are so many things we don't know. And you, and, and you can't be afraid to, to, to unveil things we have done. Uh, you know, the, I, uh, the number of Republicans who are still talking about the axis of evil in Iran over, over the last two days, <laughs> when Saudi Arabia is the problem, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are so many things that need to be said. We drew these maps. We plundered these com- countries. We have to stop. We have to take responsibility for some of what we've done, just as anyone does has to do in any crisis. That has to be on the table as well. We have just five minutes left, and we're going to turn from national politics and international politics to local politics. Boy, we've been talking for such a long time about a big hole in the state budget. Uh, just yesterday in special session, the House and the Senate come together, and they pass a measure to fill this gap. Uh, it passes uh, by a, a narrow margin in both the House and the Senate. Republicans have criticized this plan by Democrats for gimmickry, using $130 million from other accounts and one-time sources. It restores some funding for hospitals and social services, but not all. Uh, On this week, Colin, that uh, the governor has officially taken the reins of the Democratic Governors Association. Is this a good deal for him? Is this a a good deal that he's going to sign later on today? Well, I mean, this is all um, five minutes is exactly what this deserves. Uh, but anyway, um, I mean, so much of this is Groundhog Day. I mean, I, I give it more thought than they did. That's right. <laughs> I, I went back and even looked at stuff that I wrote in 2009 about the last Jody Rell budget. And it's exactly the same. I mean, the, everything is exactly the same. The resources to fix the problem aren't there. The structural problems uh, are there. Um, human services takes it on the nose uh, every time. The only thing that, to me, the, the narrative that's changed that's interesting, and I know we'll be talking to Governor Malloy uh, later today, is is that, you know, I mean, you look at a guy like Governor Malloy who grew up with a pretty severe uh, disability in the form of his dyslexia, you'd think he'd be kind of a human services advocate. Instead, the human fer- services agencies are more afraid of him than they are of anybody. Uh, I mean, they're more afraid of him than the, they are of the Democratic uh, legislators or the Republican legislators. So that's kind of interesting. Um, one of his ideas that did get brought up and, and got shot down on a point of order last night, it's an old idea, a 2011 Malloy idea. The Republicans grabbed it and said, how about 
getting like an up or down vote on every uh, state labor contract. Um, that got, re- I mean, Sharkey just said, not germane to the special session. Uh, may come back up in February. It might be an interesting debate. I mean, it's, it's not a good idea. It's not a terrible idea. And then the last thing, real quickly, the lockbox, this is a, a way of securing the transportation money. Um, it, it, did not, it didn't pass with the necessary votes to make it go forward as a constitutional amendment. So that's basically a loss. And then as if to illustrate the necessity of it, they, in their drunk uncle mode, uh, stumbled into the kitchen and busted open the special transportation fund piggy bank for, I think, $35 million uh, so they could take it to the track. It, it really is kind of key to all this, Kalila, is, is again, they're going to say, uh, we don't want a lockbox for, for transportation funding. We're actually going to take more out of what we have right now, essentially dismantling this notion that we have to spend a little something to fix our bridges and roads and everything else that seems to be breaking around the state. Right. So I'd like to have a lockbox for my paycheck. I just want to put that out there. But I don't think this is a question of whether this is a good deal, but is it good enough? Is it good enough to give Malloy this national profile of look what we're doing in Connecticut and for the legislators to leave and feel like they've done enough to secure their seats? It's hard to convince Connecticut voters that transportation is what we should be securing when you're going to see the instability of cutting social services, of cutting programs that support people with addiction or with mental challenges. It is hard to make that sell, and I think we saw that in a lot of this debate. Well, and Bill, when we brought this up in the program recently, though, when, when the governor goes around the country saying, look at what we did in Connecticut, he does say, look at what we did in Connecticut. We want to welcome in Syrian refugees. Look at what we did in Connecticut. We passed tougher gun laws. Those are the things that he's saying around the country that are different than you know, sort of what we're dealing with around a budget hole right now. Uh, as part of a $20 billion state budget. And and what you get from Malloy, in a sense, is what you get from the modern Democratic Party, which is some leadership on cultural issues. And what you don't say is, look at what we did in Connecticut. We made a deal with the insurance companies so that we wouldn't have a public option in our state employee health care plan, which was the only way we could have saved enough money to get out of this. Okay, and but I but I made a political deal with a bunch of fundraisers uh, after having run on a promise to implement this program, and then I didn't do it. And 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 we live with that cost. It's still the biggest part of the budget. You want to know where it's going to get saved? If you're going to get change, you're going to get change by bringing down the the percentage of your budget and of your economy, by the way, that is allocated to health care. Uh, and uh, you know we we lead the world in all of that. The second thing is that Democrats really have to get at the same time have to be really emphatic and committed to fiscal integrity in a way they haven't been. This is the big issue we move. You can, you, you can change the rule or write the check. You've got to change the rules to bring the cost down, and people have to, know, have to know you mean it. Bill Curry writes about politics for Salon.com. Always good to see you, Bill. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure, as always. Kalila Brown-Dean is an associate professor of political science at Quinnipiac University. Thank you so much, Kalila. Great to be here. And thanks to our own Colin McEnroe, the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Thank you, Colin. Thank you, Mr. Dankoski. Our program produced by Tucker Ives with Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Heather Brandon's our digital editor, the executive producer of where we live is Katie Talarski. Now here are some friends to tell you how you can support where we live in the wheelhouse on WNPR. Thanks. Thanks.